Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Regular listeners of the show probably know that my literary tastes run toward the dark side, but I often shy away from books with graphic violence towards young women, especially now that I'm a, a mother to a young woman. And while I had to set on the savage side down several times for those reasons, I couldn't keep it down for long because the writing and the story were so very compelling. So a little trigger warning for some disturbing conversations about addiction, drug abuse, prostitution, and a novel that revolves around the real-life unsolved murders of six women in Tiffany McDaniel's native Ohio. Tiffany joins me today to talk about her third and latest novel, On the Savage Side. She's also the author of the international bestseller, Betty, as well as The Summer That Melted Everything. Her writing is inspired by the Ohio landscape where she grew up, so we'll discuss how that landscape features as a character in her work, as well as her Cherokee heritage and how that figures into her novels. We'll talk about everything from structuring the narrative to bringing these characters to life, as well as Tiffany's writing and publication journey. On the Savage Side is published by Knopf. It is out on Valentine's Day, and it's my pleasure to welcome her on. Before I bring her on, it's your weekly friendly reminder to visit our Patreon page. After two decades, over two decades, and over a thousand episodes, and after leaving the radio station, we started the page to get more hands-on and in direct contact with you. You. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. If so, look for us there. You'll get a few perks with your membership. You can see all the benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. We appreciate it. On with the show. Tiffany, hi. Oh, thanks for having me. So before we dive into the book, because Ohio and your childhood feature so prominently in your work, I wonder if we could just start there and have you take us into your childhood experiences growing up and how, you know, Ohio kind of seeped into your bones and stayed there and whether you were always in some way or another writing about it. Uh, yeah, I grew up in both South Central and Southern Ohio. And, uh, you know, having that experience of those two places in Ohio, which is so starkly different from one another, was a real inspiration for me, especially Southern Ohio with the landscape, the rolling hills. You know, it's a land that's really rich with myths and legends. And I was fortunate enough to be raised in a household of story. You know, mom raised me and my sisters in the Cherokee culture, and it was passing down those stories from Papa Landon to her and then to us. So it was always an environment that was just rich in all of the story and the myth and legend, and especially grounded, particularly in the Ohio Appalachians. And so that's really where I draw a lot of my landscape inspiration from. Were you writing all the way along? Were you a writer as a kid? I was, yeah. When I was a kid, you know, I'd make homemade books and, uh, you know, I published them under an imprint that was named after my cats at the time, which was Sunshine, Fancy and Sammy. And I would take notebook paper and I would, uh, you know, make covers out of cardboard boxes and I would bind the books together with my mother's crochet yarn. So have been writing since I was a kid. It was really the earliest thing I remember doing. <laughs> I love that. 
So I am going to let you introduce the book. I, I tried to do a little bit of a good job, but but you'll do it much better than I. So take us into On the Savage Side and kind of the, the point of entry for you, and then we can use that as a jumping off part. Yeah, so it's inspired by a true crime case out of Chillicothe, Ohio, that's known as the Chillicothe Six. And I will say it was named for the original six victims. So the victim count has exceeded the original six, but that was kind of the name that stuck. And it was based on a few years ago in Chillicothe, women had started to disappear. A few of their bodies were recovered in or by the river. Some are still missing today, and the case still remains unsolved. And so uh, you know, when the crime first started, there was some sentiment in the community that because these women were linked to addiction and kinds of lifestyle associated with that, that they were somehow active participants in their murder. And so I was really pulled into the story to try to represent these women as the mothers, sisters, and daughters that they were, that their lives had value, that they had meaning. And as I was researching the case, you know, I was looking at the photographs of the women and one had stood out to me and it was someone I had actually gone to school with. So I had several threads that was kind of pulling me into this story. And, uh, you know, when the victim's names were Tiffany and I felt like another thread shared. And so that's really how I gravitated toward exploring this story. These murders took place in like 2014, 2015, right? Although the book is set in the 90s. They did. Yeah, I really wanted okay. to base the story earlier before technology, before social media, because all of that can really impact your characters in the storyline. Yeah. So the point of entry was there. And then take me into a little bit about the kind of that point of how research and real life and fiction depart from each other. So did you feel like you had to do a ton of research about the crime and and get your imagination flowing that way? Or did you just kind of take the, the really basic sketches of it and then jump off on your own? I took the surface details. I didn't want to go in too deep. I will say the characters in the novel are 100% fiction. I really felt like the women's stories and their truth should be told by their family and their friends and those who knew them best. So I didn't want to trespass on their voices or their stories. And so I really wanted to just get the surface details. When I read a book about crime, kind of the police procedures and all of that is the least interesting part of the story to me. So I really wanted to filter that out. I wanted to stay focused on this group of women, focus on their fear and their thoughts surrounding not just the crime that was happening around them, but their lives in general. So that was really what I wanted to focus on. And what I wanted to pull from the real life story was the violence itself, kind of use that as a basis for inspiration while trying to capture the spirit of who these women might have been. Yeah, I should say that it's marketed as a literary thriller, but it really is very character driven where you think of a lot of thriller novels as being plot driven. This really is driven by these women, their character, who they were, and their relationships with each other. And so in that regard, it felt so very literary to me as opposed to, you know, genre, true, not true crime. But so I should also say the book starts with a prologue, which is is really compelling. It's kind of told from the point of view of the river itself. So the, the bodies were found in this river. And the river features both photo prominently and photographically in the first section of the book. So let's start there with that prologue, deciding the book needed a prologue, setting it in that river's point of view, 
and when in the writing process the the prologue came about. So I will say about the image of the the photograph of the river used in the book. Now that was an image because in the research, I of course was very familiar with Chillicothe. You know, I've lived in the same county and having lived in South Central and Southern Ohio, Chillicothe was always the in-between point. And so I was very familiar with the town. And then in research, I went back, revisited these places that some of the women were found or last seen. And that photograph of the river that's used in the book, I took that from the overpass where one of the women was last seen alive. And I really wanted to include the river in the story. You know, I've, I've always lived by a river. So the water has always been very important to me. You know, when I view nature in general, I view it as having a soul and having a voice. And the river for me has always been female. And so when I was writing this story, I really wanted to bring in the voice of the river, hear the river's thoughts of how she's reacting to these women's bodies appearing in her water. So that was really the origin story of the river and her voice. Yeah, it's funny. We always have conversations in kind of on the show and in writing groups that I've been in about prologues and the power of prologues and how when you finish a book and you go back and read the prologue, the new meaning that it takes on. And I'm always interested in what part of the process those prologues come about, because sometimes they feel like as the author, I couldn't have known this was the way to introduce this story until I had already written the book. So yeah, tell me a little bit about when you decided the book needed a prologue and and when you wrote it. So um, when I was doing the river sections and I was kind of spacing them out because we have certain parts of the book where, you know, I have the river speaking on the front end. We have some diary entries on the back end. So each part has its own specific passage of time. The middle part has the keyhole image, for example. And so when I was kind of spacing out the river voices, I needed to have a space for that beginning voice of the river. And the prologue really felt like that was the perfect time to introduce the river right from the get-go. You know, we have this voice that kind of starts the flow of the story, so to speak. Is this one of the first things that you wrote when you were writing the book? No. So, well, the river voices, that was one of the first things I wrote. And because I needed the spacing, that's, it just became the prologue just because of spacing. So it wasn't necessarily going in thinking, oh, I'm going to put a prologue onto this story. It was really just I had the uh, sections of the river speaking and I needed that extra space to fit in that first section. I gotcha. Yeah, because rivers, I mean, they're so wonderfully metaphoric and it gives a shape, it gives sort of a shape to the novel. As you say, the the middle section is sort of these this keyhole imagery and the back half has these diary entries that we'll get into in a little bit without giving too much away. But when I'm thinking about sort of the shape of a novel, and I think novelists really have to do this for books that that might feel big and overwhelming of how to structure them and how to think about their shape. And when you think about it, I mean, the novel isn't entirely linear because it goes back and forth in time. You could think of it as sort of a riverish shape with some of these curves and twists and moving back on itself. And so I thought laying down that image at the very beginning was a really nice and effective way to sort of teach the reader 
how to read it. It's got this, as you say, sort of Native American infusion of nature as a force and nature having sort of intent and being imbued with with the spirit, which plays throughout the rest of the book. And it's got both the shape of the novel and the magical realism of the novel embedded in it. So it's kind of teaching the reader a little bit about the book itself and how to read it. I don't know how much of that intention goes into it when you're laying out a prologue, but it did so many things that were foreshadowing for the rest of the book. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really wanted the River's Voice to be that foundation for the story. I think, uh, you know, zoning in as her almost being diary entries from the river herself. And that was really the thinking behind those passages and that kind of positioning of the prologue itself. Let's talk a little bit about, we'll dive into the characters and then that that might give us a sense of the structure. So it's told in the first person point of view of this twin. So there are twins in the book and it's told from the perspective of one of the twins. So maybe introduce us to these twins and kind of how you conceived of the idea of the first person point of view and second of telling it from the point of view of Ark and then having her as a twin to sort of mirror off of her her sister. Talk a little bit about that relationship between them and that point of view choice. So the two main uh, twin sisters, they're named Arcade and Daffodil. It's Arc and Daffy for short. And their names have meanings which readers will uncover during the course of the book. But I really wanted to explore these two sisters uh, and their bond from childhood. So I had grown up in communities that were impacted by drug use. And so I knew what it meant you know, playing on the street when I was a kid, finding a used syringe, you know, I was playing with kids who were like Ark and Daffy. And so I was really kind of reflecting back on those moments, infusing those two characters with some of those aspects. And I really wanted readers to understand the course of their entire life, everything that had happened when they were kids to what their lives ended up to when they were young adults and in their early 20s and everything. So that was kind of the basis of the thinking of how I wanted to develop them. I wanted to give this brief but complete scope of who they were as individuals. Did you ever consider doing like a roving third person from the various women's points of view? I have, I, you know, I, I left off counting at like 20, but I have over 20 novels written. And I think only one of those has a third person. So I just generally write from first person. I find that it you know, grabs and brings the reader into the story. So from the beginning, I always really wanted to tell this from Ark's perspective. And tell me a little bit about some of the difficulties some of these characters might have given to you, either accessing their psyches. You give them all, obviously, very distinctive personalities and and traits. And I was wondering if there were any of them who were a little bit more elusive or difficult to work with, or, you know, if if any of them tripped you up and how you worked with them to unlock them. Uh, No, I mean, this group of women, um, you know, they call themselves the Chillicothe Queens in the book, and they were, you know, really nice partners from the beginning of writing this book. I just really felt like I knew every identity that I wanted the women to have. And so in this case, I mean, yeah, it was it was pretty easy journey with them just because I kind of already knew how I wanted to identify them and represent them. I should say there's a great character in here who's the twins grandmother, who is I hope it doesn't give too much away, but she doesn't stay with us for the entire novel. And yet she does, you know, her, her spirit is really infused in these girls 
And some of the lessons that she imparted on them when they were little is really infused in the girls. And so even though not physically present throughout the book, she's very present. And I was just kind of wondering on working with characters who may not be there for the entirety of the novel and and kind of unlocking her character and understanding her. Tell me a little bit about developing the grandmother character. Yeah, Mammal Milkweed was really this lighthouse in the lives of Ark and Daffy and someone that, um, you know, a responsible figure that they could really look up to. And that goes back to, you know, having grown up with kids who were like Ark and Daffy. And I understood the structure of their home, which is that, you know, their parents having those issues with addiction weren't always present in those kids' lives. And so I really wanted this figure to come in with Ark and Daffy be someone that they could depend upon and be someone that throughout their lives, they feel her spirit. And so that was really important to me to kind of balance the heavy material of the book with this relationship that was really full of joy and light and love. Yeah, she was so great. So I'd love to talk a little bit about structuring the novel. So as I mentioned, it's not completely linear. We go back and forth a little bit in time. It's kind of generally linear. And structure is always so elusive to me. It's so difficult for me. And it's so easy to get lost, especially if you're moving a little bit in time. So you have this nice, as we talked about, like river structure at the beginning. And then you've got this wonderful kind of keyhole metaphor in the middle. And, you know, middles are so complicated. Maybe we can talk about that in, in in a minute as well. But tell me a little bit about thinking about the structure of the book. I don't know if you wrote it sort of beginning to end or if you wrote it chronologically or how that worked in the writing process, but a little bit about how you thought about structuring it. And if you write a while and then outline to see kind of how far you've come or where you need to go, or tell me a little bit about that structuring conundrum. I'm a little different than some writers. I don't do any outlines or kind of planning ahead stages. And I don't write on the computer. So I write by hand in notebooks. And so I write from the beginning of the story to the end. I just find kind of those pre-planning stages can be a distraction, at least for me. For some people, it's really helpful. But it's never kind of been a tool in my chest that I utilize. And in regards to kind of those sections, I knew that I wanted to see certain images throughout the book because Ark is a character who really loves history. Mamma Milkweed for Ark's birthday sets up her bedroom to where it looks like an ancient Egyptian tomb and she's written all these hieroglyphics around the room. And so these images in the book and these sections are really the hieroglyphics of these women and their lives. And I knew that, you know, I wanted the totality of the part sections to be this image of Ark that is broken apart at the beginning. You'll see like the illustration of an eye building her face back to this complete portrait. And in between that, I really wanted to section and file those parts where it's the river, like you talked about, the keyhole and the diary entries. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I approach a story. I don't really go in with any outlines or structure points. For me, it's a more organic path of just writing the story from beginning to end and just seeing where it goes. And then once you've got that initial draft so that you have it all laid out, how much from that initial draft, how much would you say it resembled the final product in terms of structure? Did it maintain kind of the structure that you had initially, or did you have to move things around and sections around, or did it did it pretty much stay true to what it was? Yeah, I pretty much maintain, I have the structure that I write it in, so it's usually 100% crossover. 
Yeah, we should mention that you're a visual artist as well, a visual artist, I believe a poet and a writer. And so all of those elements really got showcased in the book. Each part, uh, and I think there's like eight eight parts, have, I assume those drawings are yours, yes, on the, that delineate each part of the story? They are. Uh -huh. It was a watercolor portrait and I had, you know, done the full portrait and then we sectioned it off. You know, like I said, the first part, you'll just see an eye. The second part, you'll see the eye and the nose and so on and so forth until the full portrait is complete by the end of the book. And this, you know, I really wanted that to be a representation of art kind of starting with this one piece of herself, building back her life and building back, you know, who she would hope to be. And there's a character in here sort of known as the spider and and there are drawings throughout, which is is such an added sort of wonderful, creepy layer as you have these, you know, kind of spiders crawling across your page throughout the book. Do your other novels incorporate visual cues as well? Because I really love that. Uh, not to this degree. Now, I did have one of my other novels incorporate because uh, Fly was really important to that storyline. And so it incorporated this story, the image of the fly. Um, and I will say it's not out in the U.S. yet because the U.S. publication schedule is so lagged behind. So this was a book that came out in one of the translation territories and will be forthcoming in the U.S. But I plan to have, you know, an image attachment with that story as well. So, you know, some of my stories, I feel like it, it's really important to the story and other stories, not so much. So it kind of fluctuates in terms of what the story itself is. Yeah, and the photography of the river, we should say that was a, a photo that you had taken. And as well, so each chapter begins with a little line of poetry. Daffy is a poet, and so we get a little bit of her poetry at each one. So that also is a, you know, kind of a way that you were able to incorporate that. And I was wondering if those could almost become I mean, obviously you don't outline and those aren't outlines, but at least touch points for you as a writer to say, you know, kind of here we are, like this is this is sort of the thinking in this chapter to just kind of keep yourself straight because it's got 50 some chapters, I think. So just to keep, kind of keep yourself straight, I wondered if those poetry lines kind of became touchstones for you or how you thought of those lines of poetry to open each chapter. So I tend to um, title my chapters in, in every book that I do, and I always title them after the chapter itself is written because I don't necessarily want the chapter title to direct the message of the chapter itself. So those titles always come in after uh, writing the chapter. We should also mention sort of the magical realism characteristic of the book, which are these girls who are sort of steeped in addiction and prostitution are always looking for some element of escape. And so they kind of find it in this magical world that they create amongst themselves. They are queens. They wear these, these jewels and crowns. They've got a wonderfully beautiful way of talking about their lives that are sort of less than wonderful and beautiful. So tell me a little bit about kind of creating that secondary world, kind of mental world that these women inhabit for themselves, because it's almost a, it's almost a different language for them and a way for them to take us into their alternate reality, which I thought was very cleverly done. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about that process a little bit. Yeah, so you kind of hit the nail right on the head with the language. And so I was really hoping for this mythic passages to really represent the language of the women. You know, they're living in this town that is 
you know, the dirt and the grime of their lifestyle and you have the smoke from the paper mill. And so it's a very grimy, smoky place. And so these, this group of women, they call themselves the Chillicothe Queens and they escape to this place by the river that they call the distant mountain. And the way they speak to one another, I really wanted it to feel almost like it was their own language. But, you know, you're writing a book for, for individuals that you hope that they understand what you're saying. So I couldn't, I didn't really want to invent a language that adding that barrier for the reader. And so the way I wanted the women to speak to themselves was through their story and through their language. And so those magical properties in the book is meant to really represent the way that they're speaking to each other against this backdrop of a community who doesn't necessarily value them as individuals. And you were also able to do that so effectively through the language. I mean, just staying on this topic of of how to demonstrate something to the reader through language. As we mentioned, there are these diary entries at the end of the book, and I won't give too much away, but through the language, through the way you wrote those entries, you could really show the state of mind of the diary keeper and, you know, the devolution of her state of mind through language. And I just thought that that's a great lesson for writers of the power of what language can do, either through syntax, spacing, dialogue. There's a lot of latitude of how you can show all sorts of things about a character through the the language they use and how they see the world. And, and this book had so many examples of that, whether it was writing from the point of view of the river in that first section, the poetry that you incorporate from Daffy at the beginnings of the chapters, the diary entries. There's just a, a lot of different examples of how to play with language and how to show character through different way, you know, through a different lens of language that I thought was great. I assume that's all organic that just kind of comes through the writing process, or is that something you sort of intentionally set out to as a sort of writerly challenge to yourself of how you can use language in different ways to show different different effects? So a lot of um, what I do develops kind of in that active stage when I'm writing it. And so again, I kind of don't like to plan the direction of the story, but you know, from very early on, especially in the first scene between the women, I understood that I really wanted to expand um, this conversation that they were initially having, that initial scene that I was writing. So it just came down to expanding that atmosphere and that interaction from the first scene and applying that across the board to their interactions throughout the rest of the book. Really clever. We'll be right back with more from Tiffany McDaniel and On the Savage Side in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick nudge to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, if you like these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made, this is your chance to support the show. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month, you'll get weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Tiffany McDaniel talking about On the Savage Side. Tell me a little bit about naming them because everybody has unusual names, fun names, different names. And I know, you know, naming characters can be a, a challenge and be really important because I, I mean, it really is unlocking who they are. So talk a little bit about that for, for all of these characters. 
So I do rely on naming to add that extra meaning to my characters. You know, across the board, I, I try to choose names that um, are specifically related to them, not so much that they're names that are kind of outer space quality, kind of removes readers from the story, but I try to do names that uh, settle seamlessly into the story itself. And in the case of Arcade and, and Daffodil, readers will understand the meaning of their names, you know, Arcade is attached to uh, her parents naming her when they were young and playing this arcade game and the bright flashing lights. Arc also relates to astronomical features that readers will um, encounter within the book. It also equates to the arc of her character itself. And as her sister Daffy will say in the book that Arc herself has really been a safety point or an arc, A-R-K, for her throughout her life. And uh, Daffodil, you know, her naming came from Mamaw Milkweed, going back to their relationship. Mamaw was always someone who made sure that those elements that her granddaughters loved was always available. And in the case of Daffodil, it was flower bulbs. And so um, Daffy, being the poet she is, would always stand out there amongst the daffodils and recite these lines. And so readers definitely encounter um, the deeper meaning of the names throughout reading, but I always try to add that layer. Yeah, I mean, they all had these really fun, interesting names. And the men, I'm trying to think, kind of the men, they didn't have name names. They had Sinister Highwayman and Riverman. And I really liked that, that the women had their identity and they were who they were. And the men were sort of the Charlie Brown adults where they were just kind of wonking in the background. I mean, they didn't have their own sort of identity through names. And I thought there was a lot of power in that. Right. That goes back to, you know, the idea that when these crimes were happening to the women that, um, you know, their names were trying to be taken from them, their voice, their power. And you'll see that there are some forms throughout the book. I don't necessarily name what these forms are, but there's an illustration of a female figure on these forms and her face is scratched out. And that was to emphasize that, you know, these uh, this killer was really trying to erase who these women were. And so my hope was to give that voice, give their names back to these women and really represent those predators around them as really being the nameless, voiceless predators that they are. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of those scenes, writing, writing violence, writing sexual violence, because we're often told as writers, you know, go deeper, go deeper, and you haven't gotten there yet. And then, you know, sometimes as readers, you're like, ah, oh, stop going so deep. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about writing violence and knowing when you've gone far enough to show what you intend to show, not being gratuitous, but also being thorough enough to have the impact. I, I feel like there's a real art to that. And I feel like it's, it's difficult. And there are many, there are many of those scenes in here that you have to be unique with each and every time. So I'm wondering if there are things you can say about that. I will say I tend to write about heavy subject matter across the board in my work. And so I'm pretty familiar with that territory up to this point. I think if you're just starting out and exploring writing about violence and the different degrees of violence that you want to just be careful that you're not going into so many details where it feels like you're trying to get a shock reaction from the reader. You really want to find that balance. And I don't want to go into detail on too many of these things in the book and kind of spoil certain things. But I will say I was just finding that balance 
between letting the reader know what was happening, but not necessarily describing in a detail that would make the reader turn away because that doesn't necessarily help the story itself because they're turning away from a story that you really want them to stay engaged in and to hopefully by the end of the book feel connected to these characters and you don't want to cut too many of the, that threads of connection. And they're all very unique and specific and unexpected. And like I said, I mean, it's hard to talk about it without giving things away. But is any of this kind of working with your editor to get their sense or other readers to get their sense of you've gone too far? or This is where I'm getting lost. Or, or do you really have a good sense of this now where you're, you can kind of walk that that sort of elegant line? Yeah, I think I've developed kind of a, a sense for that from um, the first book. And I will say, you know, some of the material that's in this book was also explored in my previous book, Betty. And so at this stage, you know, you're just kind of building on that foundation um, that I've always worked from. Again, I think it'd be different if, if someone was just kind of jumping into this material um, at first. You just want to make sure that that balance is there. But I think once you familiarize yourself with uh, writing certain scenes in regards to violence, that you're kind of already working from that compass that's already kind of directed from the previous works. Yeah. And likewise, addiction. I mean, I, I do think coming at addiction and specifically those scenes, you know, of shooting up and getting high, I'm wondering if, because sometimes we hear that, you know, there's kind of the rule of become a reporter and follow the physical acts of what's happening that makes it feel much more cold and clinical, gives it kind of a creepier feel. But here you didn't really do that. I mean, you you were really kind of, because it's first person, you were really in Ark's head and her point of view and her experience. And that, yeah, I, I feel like that would be tricky too. I don't know if, if the scenes of addiction or the scenes of violence are trickier or, you know, if it's kind of all <laughs> one, one landscape that, that you have a good sense of how to write, but were there, were there parts of the addiction scenes that were difficult? Well, I will say um, one of the editorial notes um, when we were working through the book was that they wanted to see more about the drugs, about buying them, scoring them, using them. And that was really something I didn't care to emphasize. I really wanted to see these women and let their drug use fade into the background, you know, give enough away that we understand their issues and that they're using. But I didn't want to go into so much detail on the drugs where they really become the champion or the main character within the story itself. And um, I think having had those experiences, not just in my community, but in generations of my family, having family members who have dealt with addiction. So from a very early age, I was aware of what the face of addiction look like. And so for me, uh, writing those scenes and the drug use, it wasn't an issue because it was something that I was already well aware and well versed in. Actually, I really appreciate you saying, because it, it strikes me that yes, with these scenes of sex and violence, they really could become the main actors. And that never felt how it was. I mean, the women always felt and their agency and their kind of essential core of who they were stayed at the forefront and what was happening to them was always in the background and yeah and that would that would really be a challenge to keep their sense of self not from being overshadowed by what was happening to them and so I think yeah that that sort of magical realism world where they lived and their claim over who they were I guess is what kind of kept them at the the forefront of the novel. And that, yeah, that would be tricky. And, and I don't know if that was 
Was that something that you had to really explore in the revision process to make sure that the violence didn't overshadow who these women were? No, I think going back and and kind of having those conversations editorially and just explaining, you know, my reasons for not incorporating that aspect of the case and understanding um, where I was coming from in terms of not letting the crime overshadow the women. I think when you talk about those editorial concerns, you know, if you're getting like a feedback of, we want to see more about how you score drugs or how you use drugs or kind of um, how this uh, killer is being tracked and you explain, well, that's not necessarily what I'm writing this book for. It's really to uh, amplify the voices of the women. Those editorial discussions, you know, they, they come out just fine because, you know, you're fielding your point of view. And so from very early on, I knew that that was the story I wanted to tell. It was telling it from the women's perspective, their voices, and just doing enough of the drug use for readers to understand, okay, this is what's happening to them, bringing it in when it was crucial to the story, but not letting it be an accessory uh, on their lives throughout the course of the book. Right. We have a lot of talks about middles on the show. I think middles are difficult for for writers. You can have a lot of headway at the beginning and you kind of know how it, you know, perhaps how it is going to end up and endings are strong, but there's sometimes sag in the middle. And this did not have that. And I, you know, partly because I think, you know, the, the stages of these women being found, there's a lot of action in the middle. And as you say, you have these different sections of, you know, each distinct section of the book has kind of its own character and its own feeling. But the middle felt very unput downable. And I was wondering if middles are something you also struggle with, as many writers do, and propping it up and making sure that you're maintaining reader momentum or kind of how you deal with that. So the way I approach a story is I really look at it as kind of building a body. And so, you know, you're laying down your beginning, which you're getting your bones on the skeleton all arranged. And the middle part to me is really exciting and fun because you get to kind of build that muscle and that tissue and that strength to the story. And then your final chapters, your ending are going to be kind of those cosmetic details, the freckles on the body, the eyelashes. And so for me, when I look at it and purchase story as if I'm kind of building this body, for me, the middle is really exciting to explore. So let's talk about these 20, you said, perhaps novels in the drawer. I didn't realize you had, so you have a a big body of work. And somewhere I feel like I read you wrote this book before you wrote Betty. No, so um, Betty is the first book I wrote. I would have been about 17 um, years old, and it took me about 20 years to get a foot in the publishing door. You know, that book explores um, an Indigenous girl's coming of age. It explores generational sexual abuse. And, you know, this was a time before the Me Too movement where it kind of reshifted the focus. But with that book, you know, over the course of two decades, I was told, you know, change Betty to a male character. They sell better. Uh, remove any talk of menstruation and breast makes readers uncomfortable. Um, that book deals with generational sexual trauma. And I was told, you know, no, nobody in a family would experience uh, sexual abuse beyond one member of the family because they would talk about it. And so there was a lot of ignorance in terms of surrounding those issues. And that kind of led to the lengthy process of being a publisher to take a chance on it, which really came after 
the new feminist movements that arose after the Me Too movements. And so during that time, I was writing and I, you know, I, I write every day all the time. And so I do have this backlog of material just because I was kind of waiting for these long uh, junctions to just get one book published. Yeah. So that's very interesting that you could revisit a book over time. You kind of here, you know, if a, if a book is in the drawer, it kind of stays in the drawer after you've tried to shop it around. But it's very interesting to me. The change in our cultural landscape, of course, would change the, the literary landscape of, of what you're able to get published. Do you get a different agent each time and reshop it around? Or how does, kind of how does that process work? So I'm a little different than um, most writers. So I work unagented. With my first book, I did have an agent. And how that happened was um, I had had Betty out so long and I had heard, you know, you want to change your lead to a male because they sell better. And so I looked at the other books I already had written and the summer that melted everything had a male lead. Uh, It was put out on submission. It sold within a month, which compared to Betty, we were going on um, the two decades there waiting for that. And so that kind of also illustrates, you know, their appetite for certain genders of a character. And so that book was agented, but Betty was not, and uh, this book is not either. I'm I'm just kind of reeling from this editorial note that you should change Betty to a man. I'm trying to right. wrap my mind around. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So then, tell me a little bit about your experience with this book. So Betty is now out and very successful, and your first book also did very well and won awards. So do you feel like that paved the way a little bit for this book, or tell me a little bit about the process of finding the right home for this and selling it? So uh, Kanaf published Betty, and uh, you know I went with them on this book as well, and I believe this book was written around I want to say 2016 or so, and so. I had already had it written before Betty published, but because publishing, once you get on contract, it's about, you know, two years wait. And the case is savage because my editor had left the house. I I think I've been on contract probably three or four years now. So it's just sometimes with different wheels working within the publishing industry, but that's kind of the reason for the, the lag time in between the book releases. Okay. And then when they bought the book, tell me a little bit about the editorial process with them. Did they, do you work with them going through revisions or tell me a little bit about that from sell to publication process and how many changes the book goes through during that? Yeah. So they got on contract with the same editor who worked on Betty. And in this case, he handed over his notes and then he ended up switching houses a little while later. So Usually we do just one big edit when I was working with him and then the rest will go into copy edits after you kind of get your structural editing done. It'll go into copy editing and you have a few passes back and forth on that Um, and then you'll get the final pass and that's really the last stage before you see the published work itself. And do you have readers along the way? I mean, outside of your editor, do you show it to people along the way and get feedback? So the only people I've ever shown my work to has been my mother, Betty, and my sister, Jennifer. I really don't um, do a ton of the other things that writers do where they're showing it to other people because you really want to work with your editor, hear that feedback, and kind of not tailor it, I think, to any of those reader responses you're getting prior to that. I know a lot of writers will workshop and things like that, and you know that can help certain people, but for me... I've only ever showed my work before publication to my mother and sister. 
I haven't read a lot of other books set in Ohio, and I just felt like that became such a strong character in this book. So it does sound like you spent a fair amount of time along this river. Like I'm just trying to think about your process of seeping these the paper mill and these houses, and there's a kind of a motel in here that plays a, a big role and kind of making that landscape one of your characters. And as a visual artist, I'm also kind of wondering, you know, is it a lot of photographs that you're kind of surrounding yourself with in your office? Tell me a little bit about the just the process of discovering this place and making it a major character in the work. Yeah, so I've always lived by a river and, you know, Chillicothe was the town that mom did her Christmas shopping in when I was growing up, where she got yarn from the yarn store. And, you know, I'd always look at the paper mill blowing its smoke out. And it always looked like this old dragon on the edge of town, just kind of expelling its smoke to me as a kid. And so I was familiar with these places in my youth. And then coming back to the story, researching it, visiting the paper mill again, visiting the um, motel again, where some of these women were uh, known to frequent or last seen, visiting these river spots where some of these women spent their final moments. It was just kind of reflection, but also understanding that with this new perspective of the crime, that these locations and it all carried its own new atmosphere with it. And so that was really what I wanted to infuse this story with, was to really see Chillicothe as a character within the book itself. Do you read in the genre that you're writing in as you're writing, or do you kind of steer clear of that? So I read very little fiction. My favorite types of books to read are nonfiction, history, science, especially the archaeological sciences, um, anything to do with paleontology. I do also write middle grade fantasy, and so I do enjoy reading fantasy as well and everything in that genre. But I don't necessarily read a ton of contemporary adult fiction. It's just never been my appetite. I really prefer nonfiction. And, you know, I was raised in a household where myth and legend was really prevalent, especially indigenous myth and legend. And so those are the types of stories that I also gravitate to with their own monsters and ends, which really, when you look at those stories, um, it really has a historical aspect to it because these cultures were using storytelling as a way to explain everything that was happening around them that science couldn't necessarily explain at the time. So that's really kind of where my reading appetite fits in. Yeah, and you can see all those footprints throughout this book. I mean, there's a, a character in here who is a textbook editor. Arc, I mean, another one of the the meanings of her name. She's an archaeologist, so she's always digging. So you can kind of see the the footprints of your interests throughout the, all these characters, which I think is so great because I feel like writers, I mean, if you read really broadly and have all of these, you know, varied interests, you can bring all those strands of unrelated things together in a really unique way to make this this tapestry of deep characterization that is a little bit unexpected. So you get these characters with these unexpected interests. And this metaphor, again, I don't want to give too much away, but the metaphor of the title of the book itself. And I don't know how you feel about titling, but titling is always a little bit tricky for writers. And I was wondering if on the savage side, which has a meaning woven throughout the book, was that always the working title and, and did that endure? It was, yeah. Yeah, I tend to keep the title that I start with. Now, in the case of Betty, that had a different title beforehand. And 
the more that I was writing the story, you know, mom's uh, voice was really coming through. So I really wanted to title the book Betty. And there was a little bit of backlash from the publisher. You know, they didn't necessarily feel that the book would do as well with that name on it. And so it was really just explained to them that this is a strong female name. I really feel strongly that, you know, the book should represent that and capture that. So sometimes you have a little bit of pushback, but once you kind of explain your position, I think it comes through a little bit more. But on the whole, all my other books have kind of started with the uh, titles that they began with. I suppose if you're going to change Betty to a man, it would, uh, you know, make sense to name the book Bert or something. (laughs) Right. Still reeling (laughs) from that comment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So tell me last minute, writing advice, wisdom. So you've got these, you know, 20 plus novels in your drawer. It sounds like you're constantly writing and revising. I heard at some point that you have sort of three novels going at the same time. Hats off. That's that's hard to keep all of that in your head. But yeah, I'd just love to hear some of your writing advice and wisdom after all of these books achieved. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I do tend to write um, more than one book at a time. So I do currently have three going. Um, And once I get to a certain point, I'll just dedicate all my time to one book in terms of revising editing. But I do tend to keep, you know, a kind of a revolving wheel of books to work on. And so, yeah, I mean, my writing advice is definitely to persevere. You know, I get a lot of outreach from writers who ask me, you know, how did you get a publisher? And it's just staying in there and staying in the game and, you know, not letting the rejections throw you off course. You know, if I had kind of listen to those rejections for Betty over the course of 20 years, you know, I might not have been published today. So my advice is always to persevere, uh, stay determined and stay on the course. And is there a a book that you have started or at what point in the process do you know it's going to go the distance? Because I feel like, you know, there, there are projects that you can get a ways into and you're like, you know, either the the center will not hold or, you know, something tells you it's it's just not going to maintain itself. And I was wondering if you had that experience where you're like, I need to set this one aside. Uh, no, no. So far, all the books I've started, they've been completed to the end. You know, once I invest myself in a storyline, I just stay with it. You know, I, I don't turn away from it. So I haven't had that experience of starting one that I didn't think was kind of worth exploring they've all kind of finished to the end so you know my advice for writers who's kind of in that process I would just say stick with it I I don't really have a ton of perspective to offer in terms of those feelings of well maybe this is something I I don't want to continue because I haven't had that experience or I can't offer a ton of advice on that but I would just say stay focused stay determined um, and let the, the story really drive you forward yeah I love that well, tell us how to follow you. I imagine, are you doing, I imagine you're doing a book tour for this. So perhaps uh, there's a way we can follow you if we can get in reach of you and come see you. Uh, so, yeah, so I don't have social media. I've been, um, you know, I'm not technology driven or I'm not a lover of technology. So I never had social media, um, but I'm sure Penguin Random House has has some footprints on their website in terms of the book and, and me and everything. So that's a good way. I do also have my website. Readers can always drop me an email directly. I do answer every email personally. So yeah, those, those two options I would say are really the best way. Tiffany McDaniel, this was such a pleasure. I sure appreciate it. Oh gosh, thank you so much. 
That was Tiffany McDaniel. The book is On the Savage Side. It is out and available on Valentine's Day, published by Knopf. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. And you can visit the website for the show, which is writers-on-writing.com. There you will find links to all of the past 900 and some episodes up there. The, the, the site only goes back to 2001, but we go back all the way to 1998 or so. But most of it is up there, so you can find it at writers-on-writing.com. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.